0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of The Freelancer Show. Today's hosts are Brooks Forsyth. Hey, everyone. Petra Manos.
1: Hi, everyone.
0: And I'm Joel Schaubert, filling in for Chuck, who couldn't be here today. And our guest today is Will Bunker. Good to be here.
2: This episode is sponsored by Cloudways. If you're running a business, then you need a website and your website needs to be up 24-7. You probably want support. I mean, let's face it, cloud hosting is a pain in the butt. And if you're really looking for a solution, you probably want something that will support WordPress or Magento or something that you can build up on your own without having to be an expert in running all of this stuff. So why not go with a solution that will provide all of this with 24-7 support, high availability, and will run your website with high performance and reliability. This is why I recommend that you check out Cloudways. Go check out Cloudways at cloudways.com.
0: Use the promo code DEVCHAT for 30% off for three months on all plans. And Will is going to be talking about making the move back and forth from freelancing to full-time or other options and going back and forth and how that's gone. So I'm really excited about today's guest because that actually matches my background fairly well. I've moved several times between full-time and freelancing. So why don't you get us started, Will, and just tell us a little bit about your background and what you've been doing lately and how these transitions have gone.
3: So I got into programming in 1994, and actually I started out as a Novell Networking Certified Engineer, uh, which you know that no longer is around, but that's what uh, got my foot in the door. And then I started pursuing the internet as soon as it came out, a good friend and I, Built uh, the dating site that became Match.com back in the 90s. But uh, I started off freelancing and periodically I will always go back to it. A lot of times I'll freelance just for friends of mine that have startups and they want help and they know that I have the experience. But this last year I've gotten a lot more serious about it and done it more or less full time, probably six of the last 12 months
0: great i'm just curious so um i've always wondered when you see big sites like that like mash.com very well-known site very big what kind of technologies were you using back in the 90s
3: oh it was horrible Uh, (laughs) we started off with a uh, programming language called tcl tickle oh i know it and uh it was used aol had a navi server navisoft and that was the language that they used And it was the only web server that would talk to a database at the beginning of 95. And so you really didn't have a lot of options unless you were going to do systems level programming.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the things, one of the fallacies people have is, you know, that anything successful must have started out with a great technological plan. And it's so often in my experience, just the opposite. You've got a business problem you want to solve and it's whatever you can do to get it up there.
3: I mean, that's the way we were. And it's interesting. We weren't the original brand match. We ended up with their name on our business after they failed, but they, uh, they went for the big splashy site and they had a, uh, I think it was, was it Solaris, the big uh, SGI boxes. And one of the problems was is each box was 10 times more expensive than the next one. And they ran out of money.
0: Yep. Got to live on a budget. So after the match.com work, um, then what did you do after that? Was that uh, was that several years?
3: Uh, that took about five years. And then after that, I would freelance on or off. I moved out to Silicon Valley. And so there are a lot of startups that I would go with. Um, although this last year, I've been coming in as a subcontractor on large uh, companies. Mostly they're making the transition from in-house, you know, servers up to the cloud. So I think there's this giant amount of work of everyone moving their stuff from their, you know, in-house option to AWS or Google or Microsoft,
4: depending on the flavor that they're running in-house. Interesting. How do you, um, I mean, that that seems like a, a pretty, you know, big problem and, and something that everyone, you know, who's not brand new has, right? But how, how do you find clients with, how, how do you know they have that problem to help them out or is it?
3: Well, for me, I'm further down the food chain. So I've developed relationships with people that know I'm good at this, you know, good at cloud, good at scale because of my background. And there's a shortage of workers in that area. And so they'll plug me in to jobs. I mean, normally when Will Bunker shows up, it's not because things have been going well. (laughs) <laughs> and so, you know, it's one of those things I know that it's the pro- the project is struggling somewhere somehow, or they wouldn't have found me in Little Rock, Arkansas and said, Hey, can you please help us with this? That's a, that's a last ditch effort there.
0: Now this AWS work, is that um, kind of a change for you then being more, is it more like server building and system operations work versus programming work? Or what is the the mix?
3: Well, they call it DevOps. And what it amounts to is that all of this backend stuff is being automated. And so you have to have a combination of not being afraid of setting up configurations, but also being able to program because uh, the paradigm is to put everything into code now. They call it, you know, putting your configuration in in GitHub.
0: Right. Infrastructure in code.
3: Yes. And so that, you know, my, my background of both programming, I mean, you know, we could, we had to do it all in the beginning, you know, so we, you know, we had to configure our own servers. We had to set up our own server room. We had to program everything. And so I'm comfortable in both worlds. And I guess that's a rare skill set to where you can both program and you're comfortable with uh, configuration setup.
0: Yeah, definitely. And what kind of languages are you using then when you're putting the infrastructure in code?
3: Uh, it's everything from uh, Python to uh, JavaScript for most of it. Uh, that seems to be where th- things are standardizing. I mean, you have other tools and other languages, but a lot of it's in uh, Python and J- JavaScript.
0: Okay. Yeah, I'm familiar vaguely with some of the other frameworks that were, there's a couple of Ruby-based ones. and then oh, there's yeah ansible is becoming popular now have you used those from time to time or
3: uh, yeah i mean part of this job is is you know being a freelancer is picking up stuff quickly mm-hmm. i mean you're leveraging your experience um if they think you're supposed to know everything about every tool that's crazy there's just too many <laughs> tools and so you just have to be really fast at picking it up and plugging into your existing experience and then leveraging it so yeah i I used some Ansible last year. Uh, It was interesting. It's got kind of a scripting language in there that you run with.
0: Now, one of the things that I've run into occasionally is to me it seems the programming and hiring environment now versus many years ago is a lot more of looking for that exact match, like you've done this exact skill we need done. It seems to be much less willing to accept people learning on the job than before. Are you seeing any more of that than you feel like you used to see? Or are you getting clients who just need the help so badly that like, we know you can do it. We know you've got a good reputation. Just go figure it out.
3: Well, they want to try to do that. It's very interesting. I'll get in some interviews and they'll ask the most obscure question. that You would only know if you had just worked on that exact thing. And I'm just very honest. I'm like, you know, I understand how to look that up. It'll take me about three to four minutes to find the answer. If you expect me to have memorized that level of trivia, I'm probably not a good fit. And I'm just very forthright about, you know, setting expectations around, yes, I can learn fast. Yes, I've done a lot of things, but even AWS, I mean, there's probably 150 products on that platform. I mean, you, no human being can say they know that. It's just crazy.
0: And your clients, uh, are they generally happy with coming and help us and bill us hourly? Or do they want estimates up front? Do they want fixed contracts? I find they vary all over the place depending on their size.
3: Generally, in my opinion, someone wanting a fixed contract is a, a sign of a very inexperienced buyer because the level of detail that you would need to provide me for, to give you a bid And then any change orders would be beyond. I mean, like if you wanted to treat it like construction, uh, I find there's a lot of naive buyers out there that, and and I try to steer clear of that. If someone uh, wants to give you uh, a halfway project and then get a fixed bid and then change it constantly based on feedback coming in from the system, I I don't want to deal with it. So I I strictly go with uh, time. And I'm very fast. I mean, like I'm much faster than almost anyone you're going to encounter, but I'm not magical and I can't predict exactly what you're going to want. And I just, I don't want to deal with clients that don't understand that. Like Mm. I, I don't buy software that way. When I contract with other people, I know it's an hourly thing. And if you ask for a fixed bid, then they've got to give you two to three X of what they think it's going to cost just to cover their basis.
0: Yep. I've run into much of that same issue. Um, when you're doing your fixed bid, or sorry, when you're doing your hourly and you get on tasks, do you occasionally have to handle a client that wants to get in there and kind of micromanage and like, well, that particular task is taking long, much longer than I thought it would and go through that whole cycle of explaining what's going on?
3: Oh yeah. It's, it's always an interesting dance because you know, you're, you're not in a position of control when you're freelancing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I will have people come in and uh, you know, at some point I'll just have to gently stand up to them on some level and just say, look, you know, if, if you don't think I'm competent here, then like maybe this isn't a good fit. Because ultimately I don't need to build whatever they're building like they need it. Not me, they need it. And so, you know, if, if they want to uh, treat uh, their contractors uh, without respect, then I, I just don't have time for that. I mean, I'm at the point in my life where I can... Uh, politely. I mean, I'm not a jerk about it, but just say, hey, this isn't working. This is not a, a good fit, you know, and, and, and let's find someone else to do this for you.
0: Boy, it helps not to be desperate.
3: And when you're starting out, like, I tell, like it was so bad. My first contracting job went so poorly, and this was when I was 23, that I pretended to leave the state in order to not have to talk to that person again. (laughs) It was the worst experience of my life. It was just terrible. And I didn't know how to handle clients at that point. And uh, (laughs) she asked me to do something that I wasn't capable of doing with the piece of software. she wanted me to program a whole office system in access, Microsoft access, Mm -hmm. which is great for 80% of it. And then just a beating for the last 20% of anything you try to do with it. And, uh, and I, I told her it was a bad idea, but then I finally, she goes, well, here, take some money. And the minute I took that money, it was over. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't get away from it. I couldn't get out from under it. Uh, and so I just learned a lot from that experience. <laughs> yeah,
0: That's rough. I had an uncle who told the IRS he was dead for five years and that went okay until they discovered he wasn't. So it, it can get <laughs> desperate. <laughs>
3: I don't know if the IRS would let me get away with it, but yeah, I did with her.
0: <laughs> so, um, when you're when you're looking for clients, then is it's, it seems like you're saying most of yours is word of mouth. You're not having to do a lot of marketing and going out and finding people. So, I guess it gives you some advantage when people are coming to you and already believe you can solve the problem.
3: Well, I mean, the person that puts me forward, believes it, but then the company that's going to hire me because I'm a subcontractor, they'll go through this song and dance of trying to figure out if I'm really any good. Because I guess there's a lot of people out there that overinflate their capabilities. And so people get really skeptical about technical people. And I just try to be brutally honest about, here's what I know I can do. Here's what I'm going to have to figure out what I'm going to be able to do. And I'm just, I'm just very, I try to set expectations because otherwise it just makes for a miserable experience.
0: And I'm going to take a moment here and just welcome Petra. Hi, Petra. I see you've popped in. Petra missed the start of our show. We had to show up a little bit to accommodate Will's schedule. So welcome, Petra.
1: Hey, good morning. It's, um, it's, it's early in the morning here in Adelaide, Australia. So I was sleeping while the schedule was changed, but popped in quietly and nice to see you all.
4: No problem. So back to um, going back and forth in between uh, freelancing and, you know, I, I say full-time, but they're both full-time, I guess. Um, how, how do you make that decision or when when does that happen between the two? Because like I've, I've been full-time and then when I finished that, I was n- never again, you know, kind of had a bad experience, never again. But I suppose I say that and then if the... Contracts dry up. I'll be looking for.
3: I mean, for me, full time implies that I want to take a financial interest in a company. Like it, you, I, I've always been a startup guy or a freelance person. I've never worked at a big company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On a farm, and so I just didn't ever. It didn't feel like a good fit for me, and so usually I know it's time to quit when I've gotten my face beat in on a startup <laughs> and, and, you know, you, cause it's very difficult to make these things work and it's much less, it's not as sexy as you would think based on movies. And so, uh, generally freelance is a way for me to lick my wounds and do something that I know is achievable because, you know, someone wants me to move a database up to AWS well, I know I can do that, but that startup—Who the heck knows? And so uh, right. it's a lot more satisfying because it's got a start and finish to it.
4: That makes sense. That that makes sense. I I guess. Uh, yeah. So, okay. So startups are actually the more riskier side of the equation, then I guess.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. Cause, yeah. Yeah.
4: You know, well, right. It just an
3: hourly rate. <laughs> so. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Right. And startup—it's you know, promises and equity. Right. Like. Right.
3: And so, you know, I'll I'll do that for a while until I get, you know, completely uh, despondent and then I'll move into freelancing and, you know, and that's not as emotionally satisfying because, you know, you don't have as much control over the situation. You are doing a very limited thing, Um, but at least there's some variety. And a lot of times the challenges are really big and that's why they're bringing you in in the first place. So I find that really exciting, the kind of opportunities I get.
0: When you're doing your startups are you typically in a situation where the pay is significantly lower than a full time would be and that's the hope for the equity or is oh, yeah, the pay that,
3: that's almost always the case okay no one no startup could afford a real consultant's hourly rate <laughs> like it's just they, they would their hair would burst into flames and they would run <laughs> out of the building <laughs> oh, it's just it's too much and so i'm shocked at like my wife is just like you mean You've been, you could make this and you've been doing that startup. You know, she's like, why aren't you just doing the, the, uh, the consulting stuff all the time, but, but it, it ebbs and flows. I mean, you guys know, it's not like it's always easy work or always plentiful work. I mean, you know, right now, who knows where we might be heading into a global recession. So it'll, it'll be interesting over the next
4: year.
2: Less Accounting provides a reliable, dedicated bookkeeper along with project manager to ensure that your business finances are crystal clear and up-to-date. How are your profits this month? How much are you making on the services or products sold? How much money is left over for yourself to invest back in your business? What's your debt situation like? Are your products selling? Do you have an emergency fund? Those kinds of questions are the things that Less Accounting software and team can answer anytime within minutes. You'll have a real human categorize your transactions. The software platform provides the ability to auto-import and auto-categorize transactions. You can create proposals and invoices in it, and they have 20-plus reports that you can use to figure out where you're at. So go check them out, lessaccounting.com.
1: Okay, I've just just got a question for you about, um, so you were talking about with the cloud consulting that people just, knew that you had a niche experience in that area. Well, were these contacts that you already had or did you start to, um, I guess, do your marketing in a way, but towards peers in the industry who would um, refer you on? Did you have a a plan with regards to getting those referral contacts? My
3: plan is that I am the best damn programmer anyone ever works with. And I, I mean, I know they're better out there, but like I deliver and that's my brand, my personal brand. And so these recommendations are people that have gotten in the trenches with me and seen me just do amazing things like VChat or The the person that referred me to these jobs last year was in a startup with me and we scaled something from you know, zero users a day to 500,000 users a day in three weeks on Amazon, AWS. And so he's seen me do cloud stuff and pull rabbits out of hats. And so, I mean, a a lot of getting recommendations is when you go into a job, over deliver. I just over deliver. Like when I go into a consulting gig, if I know I'm going to do Ansible, I will buy three Ansible books. I will make 300 flashcards and I will memorize everything to know about Ansible. And so when I show up, even if I didn't know anything about Ansible five days before I show up, I know a lot about it. And so a lot of getting the next gig is, is just being that fun and easy and good to work with now getting the first gigs hard. Like when you don't have any experience and you don't have a resume, but the more jobs I do, the more people that would love to have me back because I work that hard at delivering something that, that they can be proud of. And it's just a work ethic. And, it's not that I'm great at everything I just I, I try really, really, really hard when I go into these things and and it, and that's why I don't do it full time is because my stress level just goes through the roof as I'm trying to deliver on these jobs because it's just so intense and the deadlines so like this last job I was on, if we missed the deadline, the company had to write a three million dollar check to keep their hardware running, <laughs> and so everyone you know is worried they're going to get fired and We've got to deliver and i had to deliver the database part and it was all goofed up and i mean i spent oh man probably 80 to 100 hours a week making sure that when it happened nothing went wrong and so it's just but you learn that from startups like you just have to be so intense and go all in that uh you know you 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 build up the momentum now that exhausts me and you know i might not want to do another gig for four or five weeks but uh, but I, I think that's what's led to the career is building up that reputation with everyone you work with.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great way of working. It's interesting, actually, because I can see some parallels in in what I do compared with what you're doing. I'm, I've been specializing in analytics. And yeah. so the programming I'm doing is Google Tag Manager programming. And again, it's a fairly rare skill. And I ended up branching out into Google ads because what I found was that, um, the Google tag manager programming wasn't something that was really desired by end clients so much because they didn't know about it. Right. It was too niche. Whereas the marketing agencies knew they had a problem. Yes. So the marketing agencies would all turn up and say, Petra, we need a Google tag manager programmer right now. But the actual end clients didn't, and so once I had a um, once I was working with a client, I also have that philosophy of over delivery. They would then say to me, "Well, Petra, what can you do for us now? We want to keep working with you." Um, so I, I've, I I moved into a whole bunch of um, analytics right. programming with getting um, Data Studio reports that could. Um, resolve conversion rate optimization issues, but then um, moved into Google ads as well, just so that I could stay with those clients. But what ended up happening there was I had a divergent set of um, target markets in a way, because with the Google tag manager programming, I really needed to find the agencies that would refer me. Whereas with the, um, the core part of my business now, which is also the Google ads agency, Um, I'm looking for end clients because the marketing agencies obviously don't want to refer someone to you that might take something off their plate. So it's ended up having complexity in that area. But with the over-delivery, I actually found that the first um, few years of freelancing, I didn't really need to market too much other than letting people know I was still in business. Right. Just because things would just pop up. And uh, someone did say to me, well, you know, it's because you've niched. Mm. and it's, it's tricky though, because a lot of the specialists, they will say, well, you need to niche in a vertical. So, um, you know, for, for myself, I ended up, my, my preference is to work on e-commerce. I love working with e-commerce clients, but, um, but for me really, it was a horizontal because there weren't really a lot of other people doing Google tag manager programming, and so I do find it interesting to hear about how other people that are also in a niche do, uh, it sounds like you haven't really had to do a lot of outreach. You've developed contacts through, over time and you've been doing it for a while. Um, I mean, I've, I've been freelancing for three years, so I'm still in that, those early stages. Early that, up the reputation, mm, yes.
3: And, and that <laughs> was the thing. I mean, you know, when you start off, it's really hard to get jobs. I mean, I remember how hard it was. I, I worked. You know, part time as a Novell network manager for an insurance company, and I was an office manager for the guy's cousin, and that was it. That was all I could get. And but if if you are good in this industry, I mean, there's almost an infinity of work to be done. And so that's just how I look at it. I just look at it like there's more work than there are human beings to do the work. And as long as you keep learning whatever is new, there'll be more new work because everything gets redone. Like. Oh my gosh, all these websites. And then, oh my gosh, everything's got to be an app. And now everything's <laughs> got to go in the cloud. And pretty soon it'll have to have machine learning. And, you know, so I just constantly learn, A, because I, it's better than driving a tractor, which is what I grew up doing. Uh, <laughs> and B, I'm just curious. Like I, I find all this stuff really, really interesting. I, the happiest I ever was, was I took my son to an iPad hackathon in Silicon Valley. And we walk in there, and there was this 70-year-old guy in overalls with a beard who was porting Google Earth to iPad, and he worked at Google. And I said, okay, if that guy can be working when he's 70, then there's hope. Because this is a weird industry. At my age, everyone disappears. I don't know where they go. I don't know what happens to them. But, like, there are not a lot of people my age that still program actively that, that you run into. There's some, but there's not many.
0: I've had exactly the same experience. So I just kind of listening to what you do and the idea of I got to do Ansible. I'm going to get three books. I'm going to do flashcards. I think that insatiable hunger to learn the new thing is really the only way to have longevity in this field because I've noticed exactly the same thing. I'm easily the oldest programmer by 10 or 15 years, almost everywhere I go. And so it is a rarity to kind of stay in the field. And I think... The desire to like learn a thing, be good at it, I've got this thing I do, I can kind of relax and you know, focus on other things a little more maybe, and then that technology is gone, and now what do you do? You either make the hop or you say, oh, I should be a manager now, or maybe even change careers.
3: Well, I, I mean, if I was trying to get gigs doing TCL programming, Tickle programming, <laughs> I'd be up, up a creek without a paddle.
0: Yes. So. <laughs> Just knowing what the acronym means is more than, more than, more than enough now.
3: <laughs> yeah, there's probably some code somewhere that still does something with it. But, you know, I don't want to be messing with it. I want someone else to do that.
1: I'm only in my 30s and I was shocked when I was starting to become one of the older programmers. I, I made some um, Monty Python jokes and no one knew what Monty Python was. And I'm like, my gosh, a Monty Python joke that's not landing with a programmer <laughs> crowd. What's going on? <laughs>
0: The world's changing.
1: Yeah. I know. That's
0: funny. <laughs> yeah, so that's a, that's the second thing is is uh, you know I was talking with um, Chuck before the before the show about being a host, and I said, well, I don't have the um, normal experience being a freelancer because I don't niche and I don't specialize. And most of what you'll hear for advice is find a niche that's going to be far easier to get work. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. You probably can charge more. It might be easier to find clients. You're one of the first people I think we've had on that really uh, is kind of anti-niche. I'll do what you need and... I'm gonna make a reputation for just solving problems and I don't really care what, what the problem is.
3: Now I try to find that big wave. So right now, I mean, I got on the AWS wave seven years ago and learned how to use the system
4: mm-hmm.
3: when it was new. And that skill set has become shockingly valuable. The next wave that I see jumping on is machine learning. And so I've been spending a lot mm-hmm. of time learning machine learning because I think that that's going to be another five, 10 year wave to jump on and kind of surf in. Uh, But you do have to paddle back out and catch the next wave. Hmm. But I I don't want to overall generalize in that, you know, I only do X because I've just seen so many X's disappear. (laughs) I mean, it just everything changes. I mean, if you would have told me Microsoft was going to, well, I mean, they're a wonderful company. They make a ton of money. But in terms of developer mindshare, bite the dirt as bad as they have, I would have been no way, you know, uh-uh. And and now in Silicon Valley, I don't live there anymore. But if 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 you're a .NET programmer, you probably wear a bag over your head, um, <laughs> and not tell anyone. I mean, it's just that bad. And so things change.
0: Yeah, they certainly do. One of my last clients, they um, had this this cool little uh art table that drags around a metal ball on a bed of sand and draws these spirograph-like patterns. I, I don't know if you remember it. the spirographs. Cool. And it was really cool. And, and then it erases it. And their app was in Cordova, which was the latest thing from Facebook to be able to write your app once and then have it go to all these different kinds of phones. And Cordova is just not it anymore. Now it's React Native. And who knows how long that'll be it. And so it was one of those things where the very first talk was, you know, we want a rewrite of this. And I kind of looked at it and looked at the size of their company and said, you've got a lot of stuff working here and there's a bunch of IOT in it as well. You're going to have to rewrite a lot of things that just because you're changing technologies that are actually working. So we talked about it and I kind of talked him into saving a bunch of money by not rewriting everything. Let's just push this and fix some of the worst problems and then see if your business develops. And if your business like doubles and triples in the next couple of years, then let's talk again about a rewrite.
3: But, I mean, when someone starts saying rewrite, I feel like that scene in Braveheart where the king walks with his son's front over the window and just chucks him out, uh, you know, like, oh, that's, that's a really good idea. And then he just goes, Whoa, ah, and throws him out. Because it, the amount of work and chaos a rewrite creates is just earth shattering. And most startups can't survive it. I mean, it's, it's an unsurvivable event.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. There was a, a book written years ago about how, Microsoft had like the second or third best app in several different areas. Microsoft Word, Microsoft Excel, and then their competitors each in turn did complete ground-up rewrites and literally killed themselves. There yep. was a WordStar 2000, and there was Lotus 123, and all those apps are gone and literally died on rewrites. So I've I've definitely seen that. So unless
3: you've got great unit tests, I wouldn't touch it. Most people that want to do a rewrite don't have unit tests, so.
1: I went to a conference once where they were talking about rewrite rights, actually. And um, it was funny. It was talking about how they'll, they'll pull off the co- uh, core team to do the rewrite. But meanwhile, they've got a maintenance team on the original uh, stream. So you've got a maintenance team adding all these new features. And then by the time the new rewrites happened, well, the software has moved on. So they need to add these new features. So then they've got two different paths. And then by the time they've got to that point, both of those, new path, both of those paths need a rewrite as well because they've tried to <laughs> hack in some of the new features that have been added. So it just ends up being a... Unless you can stop everything on the current one and just put all of your resources on the new one, it just ends up becoming completely unmaintainable.
3: My last freelance job, they were still adding features two weeks before we migrated to AWS, which was just insane. I mean, <laughs> just insane in my opinion, but we pulled it off, but it caused a lot of problems. It costs them a lot of money to do it that way.
1: Now, I hope you don't mind me hopping back onto a, a previous topic, but um, when you were talking about the, b- being able to learn whatever the new technology is that's coming up, that reminds me of a book actually, and I'll I'll find the links. For it later, so we can add it to the show notes. But I read a book a while ago called The Renaissance Soul, and it was interesting. It was talking about how people are, in our society, people are held up on a pedestal if they're a specialist. Specialists are seen as really important, but this book is all about uh, heralding the people who are really good at a lot of things. And they, it's talking about if you're that kind of person who is very curious and you like to have a lot of careers or you like to have a lot of interests or you spread yourself around lots of different types of projects, that that's fine as well. And it gives you a bit of a, um, a, a guide for how to navigate the waters when you're that type of person. And I actually really enjoyed it because I recognised that in myself as well. I do think as a freelancer, you do need to have that insatiable curiosity. Otherwise, you you really become stagnant or, you know, might pine after the fjords of the ease of life as a, um, you know, in a full-time job. Uh, uh,
3: A company that's really big can afford a specialist that does just one thing because they're at a giant scale. But it's a rare thing to have the luxury of that. I mean, if, if you like learning a lot about one thing, maybe that's okay. But if you're curious like you, uh, I, I would almost rather jump off a building and get stuck in the same thing.
1: <laughs> <one of> <laughs> it does tend to happen, actually. And um, I, I, you, you started um, – obviously, you started quite a bit younger with your freelancing, but I was in uh, corporate careers for most of my – working life to date. And, uh, what I found is that when you do lock yourself into a bit of a box, your ideas for other parts of the business aren't taken as seriously because you don't have a manager title. So you can come up with an amazing idea, but if, if you're not already in the ranks, then you just as missed it. I call it being a leaf node, (laughs) (laughs) i just think you know you're on the periphery of the organization and um for me when when that happens too much i start feeling angry so I, i i turn up to work feeling angry and i'm like well actually no what i what i have to contribute can make a difference as well so that that got me started on the path of being a freelancer but um it is interesting to Consider that maybe being a specialist might not be all that it is um, meant to be, that there are plenty of other options other than being a specialist.
3: I think you have to be true to yourself. Some people like going deep on one thing and that's their deal. I mean, my dad loved being a farmer. That's all he ever did. He was really good at it. Um, Part of the reason I got into computers was I didn't want to do the same thing every day. And so, if getting into computers meant doing the same thing every day, I might as well drive a tractor. You know, I wanted to do something different. I want to, you know, grow, find something interesting. And, and so that's the career I wanted out of it. And luckily the world's big enough that I think you can carve out, you know, a direction. I kind of think of it like being a multi-class character in D and D, you know, that's really good for a startup. Maybe it's not great for, you know, uh, another situation, but you know, I've got to be, fairly competent in a lot of things. And I don't get the luxury of being, you know, great, you know, the world's greatest Microsoft SQL Server database administrator. But I can set one up and I can run one and I can get the queries in there. But, you know, if you're really specialized to that point, I personally just lose interest.
2: Springboard offers the first online self-paced software engineering bootcamp with a job guarantee. Become a software engineer or get your money back you'll be mentored by senior software engineer or technical leader who has worked at companies like Microsoft, Intuit, and Amazon. Springboard has helped graduates increase their salary by an average $25,000 a year. Make a risk-fee investment in yourself and apply now. For a limited time, use the code JABBER, unique to our podcast listeners, to get $500 off the course. That's springboard.com.
4: That makes sense. Um, I I, I can definitely relate with uh, wanting to learn you know, sometimes you have to put the blinders on because you want to jump onto the next thing over and over again, right? Or or play with this and that. But um, yeah, I I can relate to the the urge of wanting to keep on learning. You know, like like you said, if if you didn't want to learn in this field, well, at least in the programming, then <laughs> yeah. what what else would you do? I mean, no
3: where I draw the line is I don't try to convince clients to switch out their existing stuff for the shiny new thing because mm-hmm. that's just not appropriate. Like I, I've never tried to drag someone in because the cost of doing that is just too high. But if you learn something new, eventually that becomes the thing everyone's doing it in anyway, and you get a chance to do it at that point.
4: Right. Right. That makes sense. I was one of my, I wouldn't say my, I think it was my second um, programming job was converting a, flash application over to angular 2 which just got so that was a total rewrite but i think it was kind of forced because the browsers have to. yep yeah just stopped right so and and i i left before it was finished and i, I was there for two years so it was it was a painful holy process holy yeah t-
3: wow <laughs> it must have been yeah. a pretty complex app then
4: yeah it was it was um it was for, uh, repairing and ordering parts for heavy equipment, right? So it was a large catalog style application and had all oh, sorts and of, and
3: they made the flash choice. Oh, that yep. oh. Yeah.
4: Yeah. They're doing a lot better now though, but yeah.
3: Steve jobs almost single handedly put flash out of business.
4: So he did. That's right. When, uh, with, uh, iOS. Yeah.
3: Yep. Said it was ugly. <laughs>
4: He was right, but
3: yeah. <laughs> yeah, when we did VChatter, it was initially in flash. Cause that was the only way to do a uh, video broadcasting was flash at that point. And boy, the flash books are giant. They're like 600 pages of all kinds. Of, that was one of the harder projects I ever had mm-hmm. to do right there was, was get up to speed and get that launched. Yeah. Flash was a beast. That's for sure.
0: So, Will, you were talking about um, catching these waves of technology and how you're on an AWS wave right now and kind of looking forward to perhaps the next wave of ML. Can you talk a bit about your looking out there, how you identify what you think is probably going to be a wave and then how you go from knowing maybe nothing or very little about it? What are your steps you would go through to start preparing for the next wave and then maybe looking for work in it?
3: So startups are a great place to kind of notice these trends because what will happen is, is all of a sudden everybody raising money puts machine learning. It's just a slide in their deck. And of course, they don't know squat about it. Nobody knows anything about it, but, but, but they know everyone's excited about it. And so they'll put machine learning in there. And so if you look at startups and the kind of startups that are launching, um, you can get a good sense of what tech is going to be popular five to 10 years out. And then it it was hard because with machine learning, the whole ecosystem almost lives in Python world because you've got TensorFlow, you've got uh, all these tools, pandas, data science. And for whatever reason, uh, it all grew up in the Python ecosystem. And I was a big Rails guy prior to that. And so I'm looking there and I'm like, oh man, I got to learn Python and it's, Almost like Ruby, but just enough different that it throws you off. Uh, but so I just started laying the groundwork. I said, "Well, okay, I need to learn enough Python that I can do uh, pandas, and then I'm going to do enough pandas that I can then do uh, TensorFlow." And so I'm just slowly ratcheting my way into it. And it's hard because you have to maintain your interest over a long period of time, where there's not really any feedback from the environment other than you're spending time on it. But I I feel that um, The skills I'm learning at some point in the next, probably, I'd say 18 months, people will start wanting me to do stuff in that place.
0: Sounds a little like going to the gym where uh, you just got to go to the gym every day and your goal is not super specific because no one's making you do it or setting milestones for you, but you have to kind of handle the open-endedness of just learning.
3: Right. And then where I'm going to try to leverage my current skill set is there are people that want to move their machine learning workflows into the cloud. And so all of a sudden I can now get attached to stuff because I know the cloud piece. And then I can get near the machine learning stuff and eventually someone will let me start playing around with it. And I'll crawl my way over to that part of the the system. But you know so you've got to kind of find the adjacency uh from where you're at from your current skill set to that new skill set.
0: Great.
1: Yeah, that's a good tip actually because trying to jump from one thing to another you can you can work on personal projects all you like, but there's still going to be someone that says, show me the proof, show me an example of when you did it for a client. It's always funny. People don't necessarily want to be the first one <laughs> to be your client. But um, if you do shuffle along along that adjacent path, like you're saying, then you can say, well, you know, this is the steps that I've taken. I've worked with these different clients and it it, um, it does add a lot to your, it's not so much a resume, obviously, when you're freelance, but you can definitely say that you've got the experience and, and that's what counts. Um, so have you been finding then that in the meantime, you have been doing it as personal projects and as a personal project, how much time are you spending on that?
3: Um, it, it varies a bit and from the middle of a gig, it gets a little intense. And so I have less time um, when I'm in between gigs, I'll probably put two to three hours a day into it. But I also, uh, you know, I was thinking about, you'd mentioned marketing. Well, one of the ways I've gotten machine learning experience is I put my resume up on Upwork. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I'm a big believer in that uh, a lot of life is just saying yes when the opportunity shows up. And so I'll have someone reach out to me on Upwork and say, oh, I've got this. You know, I had a, he, was a, he was a student at um, Stanford and he needed uh, help getting, again, getting his stuff into the cloud. So that was my current bridge. His machine learning work up in the cloud working on Amazon. And he was in dire enough circumstances that he was like, okay, I'll hire you to do it. Now, I didn't take a very big hourly rate. Matter of fact, that was one of the very few fixed bids I've, I've ever done in the last two or three years. But I went, he wants me to do something that I'm going to spend learning anyway for free. So I might as well get the motivation of him paying me something to move it up to SageMaker, which is Amazon's machine learning product platform. And so I use Upwork. I, mean, I don't actively market myself there, but I put a profile up and probably once every two months, someone will contact me and they're, they want to work with someone they can talk to in English. And so they're willing to hire me over the 500 other thousand people that, you know, put their, Put their uh, bid in for the job. So I won't proactively contact people. I'll wait for people to contact me and then screen for a good fit to make sure that they don't have unrealistic expectations about freelancing.
0: Yeah, I love that idea. The idea of um, learning but combining some of your own time for free. I mean, this goes back to the same thing. I found the same thing as Petra found. When you're in a big company, people get so excited for you to specialize. And now, oh, Joel knows how to do this thing. So all of that work goes there. Everyone else can forget about it and not learn it. And you (laughs) become better and better at it. And pretty soon you're the person that does that, but it's a very narrowing experience. And yes, (laughs) that's right. Just keep cranking, turning that wheel. And what I found is the one way out of it is Being willing to do extra work for free to start to learn something else because no one ever objects to that even in a full-time company or doing it the way you're doing not you know not in your case not free but for a discounted rate because you're getting to mix learning and having a very specific goal which I don't know about you but for me that's just a huge point of focus and motivator on to study specific things is that do you find that that gives you much more of a boost in your learning than kind of the open-ended
3: It does, because if you don't have something you want to build or someone else wants to build, it's hard to focus the learning around being effective. And so you really need an outcome, and that outcome will drive what sticks in your brain about the thing you're learning. And if you're just, quote, you know, learning it with no outcome, it's very difficult to remember it and
4: retain.
0: Okay. Is everybody ready to move on to picks or do you want to, has anybody got some last questions you want to get in for Will? I'm all set. I Good. definitely enjoyed it, but yeah. Yeah. Petra, ready to move on to yeah, picks? Yeah, I'm all
1: set. I'm all set. Okay,
0: Great. All right. Now we'll move on to the picks section of the show where people give a recommendation of something they've been learning about or enjoying and something that we hope you too will enjoy. Brooks, what are your picks for today?
4: Um, I'm going to pick, uh, you know, making sure you have a hobby or, or something, um, away from the work that, uh, you can, you can do my, my hobby, is saltwater aquariums. Um, so growing coral and, and I see it back there. This was a video show. Uh, but, um, yeah, just making sure you have something that you can turn off and, and walk away from it. And, uh, it's nice to have something uh, to do. Besides work,
0: right? Great. I love it. Yeah, that was a big hobby at one company I worked at. Everybody got into saltwater aquariums actually at the office. So that uh it brought all of us a lot of joy in that case. Yeah, yeah. I see your aquarium back there. It looks great. Yeah.
4: It's a it's a work in progress right now. But um, yeah.
0: Great. And Petra, what's your pick for the week?
1: All right. So my partner actually recently purchased a book for our kids, but I found it really um, interesting. It's called Principles for Success by Ray Dalio. It's not the big tome. It's actually a picture book. Mm. And um, it's, it's interesting. It's basically his words of wisdom, but with um, as, as a, as a graphic novel, I guess, but it's, it's quite short and it's, it's really good for all ages and you can read it back to back in about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, but it's, um, it's a really nice book and I recommend it. So I'm just going to share a link to, to get it on Amazon so people can see it.
0: Great. Thank you, Petra. Yeah. I know I've watched a few of Ray Dalio's videos on explaining, you know, the long-term and short-term debt cycles on YouTube and I find this stuff very inspirational.
1: Yeah. This one is really aimed at, um, just distilling his views on life to, on solving problems, I guess, but it, making it accessible, making it accessible to children, but also just anyone who doesn't want to get through a big time. I mean, his, his first book that he brought out on the topic is very weighty and a lot of people would be scared off by that. So this one's just a yeah, quick read.
0: Sounds good. Great. Thank you, Petra. And uh, my book is, my, my pick is also about uh, getting away from work and not being too wrapped up in work. Uh, when I was younger, I was a competitive bicycle racer and bicycle racers are obsessed with their weight for the obvious reason that weight makes you much slower uphills. And so as most bike racers, I've tried uh, almost every kind of diet and I finally found a book written by an endocrinologist, a diabetes doctor who actually explained how the whole weight gain and and lowering mechanism works. Because whenever you go on a diet, it feels like your body has this set point and you lose a little and it wants to go back up to that no matter what, as soon as you start going off the diet or whatever. This guy actually explains with pictures and kind of mechanical things how that actually works and why it works that way. And it was the first time I really felt I understood how blood sugar and insulin and body weight set point all work together. The book is The Obesity Code, and I'll put some show notes to it here, and it's fairly technical because I think he expects to have to be able to convince other medical professionals, and so, of course, if it's your own field, you're more skeptical. I'm not a medical professional, so I could just read it and look at the suggestions and just try them out. I mean, it's great. We all have our own bodies as our own laboratory, and the suggestions of what to actually do once you know how the mechanism works were fairly simple. Now, it's never easy to follow and change any of your habits, so they're not necessarily easy to apply, but as far as easy to understand and how to follow, it was really a wonderful code set of rules that, for me, kind of opened the door to understanding that. And since following this, I've lost a, a pound a month for about 12 months now, and I can tell when I eat a lot more and stuff, instead of my weight going up, it goes back down to this new lower set point. So, so far, it seems to be working quite well for me. So that is my pick for the week. And Will, Will, what is your pick as the guest?
3: Well, Petra has inspired me and reminded me of a book that I loved, and it was called The Art of Learning. And it was about a guy who was a grandmaster chess player and then became a world-leading karate practitioner. But he had the most brilliant way of breaking down how to train yourself to be better at something. And it's that balance between you need to be interested enough to keep learning, but you've got to be in your, com- you know, a little bit out of your comfort zone to make it happen. And so he just had a great way of outlining it. And I've been using it ever since I've read it. Well, thanks, guys, for moving the schedule around. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. Right. It's really great to have you. And um, Petra, I'm fascinated by that book you're talking about where you talked about being an omnivorous learner and stuff. Great.
1: Yeah, it's a good book. Um, I read it ages ago. It, um, it looks like I was published 2013, but I think that's a republish because the one I got was, oh, I read it 12 years ago. So definitely it's a republish.
0: Yeah, I'm fascinated yeah. In that right now. I'm, I'm taking a, a course just in like, you know, just looking at the different areas of your life, keep taking care of your body, taking care of your family, helping others. And one of them is called breed and it's understanding what breed of person you are and what's going to make you happy and, and what works for that type of person. So this sounded very much on that kind of theme.
1: Mm, yeah. Um, there's another one as well, but I've forgotten what it's called. So I'll, um, I'll find it and, and share it by email. For the life of me, I can't remember what that one's called. (laughs) But there were two. There were two really good ones.
0: Great. All right. And uh, now we close by thanking everybody and inviting people to follow us on our choice of social media. Before I do that, Will, do you have something prepared as far as how people can follow you when I ask you?
3: Uh, Twitter at WBunker.
0: Great. Okay. All right. Thank you, everyone. And that wraps up today's show. I'd like to thank our co-hosts, Brooks Forsyth. Hi, And Petra Manos. Thanks. And Will Bunker. And Brooks, how can people reach you?
4: Uh, they can get me on Twitter at Brooks Forsyth.
0: And Petra, how can people reach you?
1: Uh, you can come to my website at um, www.petramanos.com.
0: Thank you. And Will, how can people reach you? Twitter, it's
3: at WBunker.
0: Fantastic. And for the time being, best way to find me is on LinkedIn. Well, thank you everybody for uh, joining us for this show, and we will see you next episode.
2: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.